Let me mention a couple of uh, things that certainly we uh, would appreciate your prayers concerning. One is I, when I was in Alabama last week in a gospel meeting, just Thursday night at dinner we were talking and one of the elders mentioned, and some of you may already know this, that John uh, D. Berry, who is a very faithful gospel preacher and one of our state legislators as well, uh, lost his wife uh, a couple of weeks ago. She had suffered uh, a stroke when he was coming to PTP in late August, and I just learned from um, the brother Thursday night that John's wife passed away, and so I know that the family would appreciate your prayers. John's a great man, great gospel preacher, and uh, we certainly uh, hate that. Also this morning, and I've mentioned this to some, but we have more information now. Seth, uh, of course, Seth and his mom, our younger daughter Tiffany, had gone to Haiti uh, a year or two ago with a group on a mission trip, and they worked closely with an orphanage there uh, where a good sister in Christ, Roberta Edwards, was heading up that uh, effort with those children there and working there, and uh, the Estes Church in uh, Henderson, uh, where Fried Hardman is, had been, I guess, uh, overseeing that work, closely associated with that work. But um, tragically, uh, she was attacked uh, by a group, and we had heard that five children had been taken from the orphanage. It's just one child, as it turns out, but she was shot and killed in that attack. They shot her in the head and took the child. Our understanding now is that the child was a child that had been taken from a family because of um, uh, the family not uh, uh, being worthy of taking care of the child. There was concern about the child's welfare, so they, whoever was in charge took the child away and placed the child with Roberta in that home, and the ones from whom the child had been taken, I suppose, were the ones who instigated the attack, came and got the child back, but in the process shot her in the head and killed her. And so it's a tragedy beyond description. And uh, also, Seth says, there's a group down there now, a mission group is there now, some of whom they had been with on their trip uh, in Haiti now. So we do have some workers uh, down there now. So let's pr pray for that situation and for all those uh, who were involved in that uh, terrible, uh, tragic uh, situation. You know, things such as this and things we hear about every day and things we experience at times remind us, certainly, of the importance of having a strong faith and of being encouraged in times of great trial and also being warned against false teachers and false teaching that uh, is so prevalent today, the false teaching. Well, tonight we're going to look at an epistle that is designed to do just that, an epistle that is designed to strengthen our faith, an epistle whose purpose is to encourage us under trial and to also warn us that there is false teaching in this world. That epistle is the second epistle of John, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, an epistle comprised of just one chapter, consisting of 13 verses, and it's our purpose tonight to simply do a one-lesson study of this one-chapter epistle. An epistle written, of course, by John the Apostle, most believe around A.D. 90 or so, at about the same time the third epistle was written. We've already studied in a series of lessons on Sunday night, 1 John, and so tonight I'd like for us to see 2 John, and then in one other lesson we'll go ahead and look at in one study. 
third John. John, of course, is called the Apostle of Love. And certainly it is not surprising that that designation was given to John because he talks so much about love. Four times in just these 13 verses in 2 John, the word love is used. Another key word in the epistle is truth. Five times we find the word truth used, and four times the word commandment is found. As we said, its purpose is to strengthen faith and encourage people under trial and to warn against false teaching. And it is certainly pertinent to our day and time because faith always needs to be stronger. We always need encouragement under trial. And tragically, there are always those who pervert the gospel of Christ and who teach false doctrine. This epistle begins the elder. And because the article is there, the indication is that he was simply referring to himself not in an official capacity as an elder in the Lord's church, as was Peter, of course, but simply as the older, that is, an older man, as he writes. And he is writing to, it seems, a specific Christian sister, a sister in Christ who is a Christian, to the elect lady. Now, women are never called ladies in the New Testament, and the word here is from a word that would be transliterated C-Y-R-I-A, Syria. And so it is thought that a specific name is under consideration here, and that John was writing to a sister in Christ whom he appreciated and loved for her love for the truth, and her name was Syria. And she obviously was a woman who had children because it is addressed not only to her but also to her children. And notice how he expresses it. Whom I love in truth, whom I love truly, and not only I but also all those who have known the truth. There's a special relationship that is sustained between those who and among those who have known and obeyed the truth. And that bond is very special. It is like no other bond on earth. It is stronger than, than any other tie, or should be stronger than any other tie. And John stresses that here. And then he adds in verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. What a great assurance that is that the truth that we are privileged to have the truth that we are privileged to hold in our hands, the truth that we are privileged to study and to come to know and to come to obey, that truth will never change, nor will it pass into oblivion. You know, that reminds me of, of what Voltaire uh, had uh, predicted, that in his day, or that within a hundred years of his day, Bibles would be unknown. Christianity itself, I think he predicted, would have completely been obliterated from the world scene and that it would not exist. And yet, sometime after Voltaire had passed from the scene, it is said that his dwelling place became a depot to store Bibles. And indeed, Christianity has not passed from the scene. The detractors have come and gone but the Word of God stands. Why should that shock us when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will by no means pass away. John reminds us again here of that great truth about the truth, that it abides forever. But notice something here. John does not say because of the truth which, or because of the Holy Spirit which abides in you and guides you in some direct miraculous way. No, he attributes, he attributes power here, obviously, indwelling power, power that is within us to what? to the truth, equivalent to the word that abides in us. And while it can certainly be said that the Spirit influences or accommodatively dwells in us as the word does, it is nonetheless through the word, through the word that the Spirit influences. It is through the word that the Spirit dwells, and by dwell I mean simply influences us. But John here emphasizes the power of the Word. Remember in the Ephesian letter, the Apostle Paul spoke of Christ dwelling in our hearts by what? By faith. The Holy Spirit would dwell in our hearts by the same means. God dwells in our hearts by the same means. Why would there be a difference between the Spirit's indwelling, God's indwelling, and Christ's indwelling? And if it is specifically and explicitly stated that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen. then it should not surprise us that John says, because of the truth which abides in us, the Word which will be with us forever. And then there is a greeting that is characteristic in the New Testament, seen time and again, and that greeting in verse 3 is, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Grace is the ground of our salvation. Grace is favor, literally. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Without grace as a groundwork, there could be no possibility of salvation for any of us. Grace is God's favor. The grace that appears to all men in Titus 2, verse 11. But it is said, and I think accurately so, that mercy differs in the sense that mercy is grace in action. Mercy is God acting upon His grace in a way that relieves the misery of those who are in sin. Grace in action. And then peace is the result of that action. It all begins with grace. It takes action through God's mercy and the giving of His only begotten Son and the plan of salvation that came through Him. And when we avail ourselves of that plan and when we obey that plan, the result is peace. Peace that passes all understanding. Joy that is unsurpassed. And so John's wish for this sweet sister in Christ is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. But notice the phrase at the end of verse 3, in truth and love. In truth and love. How do you separate love from truth? You do not. And John does not. Nor did Jesus when he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And so the two really are inseparable. To walk in truth and to walk in love are, are inseparable because it is love that should motivate us to obey the truth. And to walk in truth without love as the motivating factor makes truth or walking in truth 
mere duty, formality, and not motivated by the love that should motivate us to walk in truth. By the same token, if there is love without obedience, then there is empty emotion. An emotion that does not manifest itself in obedience to the will of God. Back to John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so John says, in truth and love. And he goes on to say, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Now, John had obviously come across some of this Christian sister's um, children. And he rejoiced to relate to her that he had had contact with them. Seems to be indeed what he is saying here that I have found some of your children walking in truth. And he rejoiced over that. Walking in truth, notice this, as we receive commandment from the Father. What commandment from the Father? To walk in truth. We have been commanded to walk in truth, motivated by love. 1 John 1, back in John's first epistle, verses 7 through 9. If we walk in the light, which is equivalent to walking in truth, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, that is, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in verse 5, he issues a plea to this lady. And he uses that same word, lady, that same Syria, indicating a proper name. I now, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of the gospel. What is it, John? That we love one another. Takes us back to the gospel, according to John, and what John recorded about Jesus when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That is the newness of the commandment, not love. Love has always been a commandment in every dispensation of time. But the newness of the commandment that Jesus gave is, to the degree that I have loved you. There's the newness of the commandment, that you also love one another. And then he said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And John, the apostle of love, emphasizes that great quality time and time again in his writings, that we love one another. And verse 6, he says, this is love. But here's how love shows itself. Not by our coming together and telling each other all the time how much we love each other. There's nothing wrong with expressing that love, and certainly it should be expressed. But that is not the love about which John writes, not that empty emotion or not that empty expression of emotion. This is love, John tells us in verse 6, that we walk according to his commandments. Again, it gets back to John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. The American Standard there incidentally says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And what does John remind us about this walk in love in 1 John 5 and verse 3? He says, for this is the love of God, same thought as we're looking at here, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and then he says this in 1 John 5, 3, and his commandments are not 
burdensome, as the New King James renders it, or grievous, as the King James says. His commandments are not burdensome. What is it that makes His commandments anything but a burden? Love. Love makes them light. Love takes away any burden that could be associated with commandment keeping and makes the commandments light. Reminds us of what Jesus said in the greatest invitation ever issued, doesn't it? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle, as the New King James says, and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For what? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What makes, what makes that yoke into which we willingly and lovingly submit, what makes it easy? It's not easy always to live the Christian life. Obviously, we have just heard of a sweet sister in Christ in Haiti, Roberta Edwards, being killed. She's there, was there, because she's a Christian. But she was there in a very difficult situation, bearing a burden that she no doubt considered to be anything but a burden, but a joy and a light yoke to bear. What is it that makes that yoke easy and that burden light? Love. Love makes the burden light. Love makes the commandments light. And then in verse 7, we get the warning about deceivers. And it comes on the heels of the admonition to love one another and to base that love upon a mutual submission to the truth of God's Word. Love those who have submitted as you have to the will of God and who are walking in truth. And appreciate them and love them for their walk in truth. And encourage one another and lift one another up as you continue to walk together in truth. And that will help you to be able to overcome any false doctrine that seeks to interfere with that fellowship and to disrupt, disrupt that fellowship. And so he ties the admonition to love in truth and to walk in truth with what he says and then in verse 7. For, because, in other words, it's so important that you love one another. It's so important that you love on the proper basis. And that love is tied to truth. A truth that we can obviously know and be sure of and follow and walk in. Because many are not walking in that truth. That's his next point. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And then he adds, who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And when we studied 1 John, we studied that matter of the Gnostic heresy and those who were denying that deity could ever become flesh. And John deals with that heresy, but he also deals with any error and any deception, which is very prevalent still in our world tonight, tragically. And so he admonishes, Verse 8, look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. There you have another one of the hundreds of passages in the Scriptures which tell you it's possible to fall from grace. 
if it's not possible to fall from grace, then why is verse 8 even in this letter? Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for. Is it possible for, for us to lose the things we've worked for spiritually? Well, of course it is. Otherwise, John would never have issued the warning. But that we may receive a full reward. Keep on working. Keep on working despite the difficulties, despite the false teaching that is so prevalent in any particular period of time. Don't be overly discouraged by that. Don't be overly discouraged by developments, whatever they are. But keep on working and looking toward that full reward. And then there are verses then that follow in verses 9 through 11 that perhaps are the most familiar to us in this epistle. He writes, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now there's a sober warning. Whoever transgresses, that word there is from a word that literally means whoever progresses. That is, whoever becomes progressive. You know, we hear a lot of people talking about the need to be progressive. No, not in that sense. Not in that sense at all. Not when the progress means progressing beyond the doctrine of Christ. And incidentally, what is the doctrine of Christ? There are those who would contend that the doctrine of Christ is simply the doctrine about Christ. And so as long as you believe in Christ as being the Son of God, and you hold to that core belief, then you're not violating the doctrine of Christ. That's false. The doctrine of Christ is not only the doctrine about Christ, it is the doctrine of Christ. That is the doctrine belonging to Christ. The doctrine that Christ himself taught and the doctrine that he also inspired through the Spirit, whom he promised to send to the apostles, the doctrine that he gave to them and to every other inspired writer through the Holy Spirit so that the doctrine of Christ is the New Testament, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, not the doctrine about him, the doctrine from him. John twelve forty eight, a passage we often cite and rightfully so, reminds us, Jesus said there, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. The word that I have spoken, yes. The letters in, or the words in red letters, well, yes, that's involved. But not just those words in red letters, but the words that Jesus authorized, the words that Jesus conveyed as he promised he would when he was about to leave the apostles, when he said, the Holy Spirit will come to you and guide you into what? All truth. I have many things to say to you. You're not ready to receive them now, but the Comforter is coming. When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He did that. And those whom he guided into all truth have recorded for us just what God wanted us to have, and therefore that is the doctrine of Christ. But notice how serious it is not to violate or to go beyond that doctrine in any way. He says he who does that does not have God. You do not have God. 
You have abandoned God if you abandon the doctrine of Christ. Because God and Christ are one. And the doctrine that Christ taught and the doctrine that Christ authorized is the doctrine of God. It is the doctrine from the Godhead. And you cannot abandon that doctrine and still claim to have God's approval. But what about those who abide in that doctrine? You have both the Father and the Son, he says. Because again, the Father and the Son are one. So you don't abandon one without abandoning the other, and you don't claim the one without claiming the other. And the only way to claim both is by abiding in the doctrine of Christ. And then he tells this Christian lady, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Now that doesn't mean you don't say hello. That's not the meaning of greeting here. But we also have to keep in mind that in New Testament times, there were no uh, motels uh, on the scene then. And those who traveled and preached and taught would be dependent upon members of the Lord's church to help them and to assist them on their journey and to provide some things that would encourage them and keep them going. And what are you saying to this lady is who might be very much inclined and would be based upon her obvious Christian character. She might be inclined to take in and probably had done so those who were preachers and teachers of the truth. But he's saying when one comes to you and is not a teacher of truth, then you do not receive him into your house and greet him, meaning you do not do anything to bid him Godspeed is the idea. He's not saying if a false teacher is uh, lying in a ditch somewhere and you know him to be a false teacher, but he's been severely injured and hurt, you just say, I'm sorry, I've got to pass by you. You're a false teacher. No, that's not the thrust of this teaching. We'd be obliged to help anyone in certain circumstances. But what he is saying is don't help a false teacher under circumstances that would encourage his teaching and further his work. Don't do that. That should sober our thinking, should it not? As to how we should conduct ourselves in our relationships with those who are in that situation. We are kind, we're compassionate, we're courteous, but we do not fellowship or in any way encourage false teaching or false teachers. And he adds this sobering note in verse 11. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And again, greeting is not simply saying hello or even a handshake. That's not what he's saying. He's saying do not greet him in a way that encourages him and makes him feel that you're bidding him Godspeed and that you're on his side. Do not do it. Do not do it. We can be courteous and should be and kind and compassionate but uncompromising in our relationship. And we have to use good judgment and common sense as well as the Word of God, obviously, in how we conduct ourselves in those relationships. And then he concludes, having many things to write to you, 
I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face. It's interesting, the words there face to face literally are mouth to mouth. <laughs> I, I look forward to coming to you and talking to you mouth to mouth, seeing you, in other words, in person, that what? That our joy may be full. You know, as I looked at this verse again and thought about it, I thought, how much people deprive themselves of when they willingly fail to assemble with the saints at every opportunity they have and just simply choose not to. Where do you get your greatest encouragement? Where, where should there be the greatest joy? The greatest encouragement and the greatest joy comes from being face to face with brothers and sisters in Christ as often as we can, and building one another up and loving one another and encouraging one another. And John says, paper and ink does not replace my being able to see you face to face. And that ought to tell us, if we need to be reminded, of just how precious it is to be able to see each other face to face and to draw encouragement from one another. And then the last verse is, The children of your elect sister greet you. So John, obviously, knew her sister. This seems to be, indeed, a greeting from your nephews and or nieces. In other words, the children of your elect sister, if a true sister, and the context would indicate that that is the case. The children of your elect sister, I have come into contact with your nephews or nieces, whoever they were, and they send greetings. And, obviously, the statement indicates that Syria's sister was elect, meaning she was also a Christian. Was she living at this time? He doesn't say, but it may indicate that she has passed on. Otherwise, why not say your sister and her children send you greetings? But for some reason, the sister herself does not send greetings, perhaps because she had passed on. We don't know. But her children send you greetings. Amen. And thus ends a very brief but very powerful epistle from which we can gain much, just as is the case with all of God's Word. To strengthen our faith to encourage us under trial, and to certainly warn us of false teachers and false teaching. And we are certainly reminded, since the word truth is used five times and love is used four times and commandment is used four times, that you cannot separate love from truth and that we can know the truth. And tonight you can be assured that when I tell you, if you are not a Christian, that you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you must repent of your sins, confess Him to be the Christ, and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins, that I am telling you the truth, and you can look it up right here. Believe that I am He, or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me, and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Those are the commandments that Jesus says we must keep, but he also says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
let love motivate you to love in return and to manifest that love as John teaches us and as does the whole New Testament to manifest it by doing something that is by obeying the truth if you need to come home to your first love we plead with you to do that tonight as we stand to sing to encourage you will you come